Now turn to our scripture reading in 2 Kings chapter 15. Second Kings 15, and we'll read that chapter. It moves along pretty fast, so fasten your seatbelts. Second Kings 15, verse 1. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And the Lord touched the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house. And Jotham, the king's son, was over the household, governing the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Azariah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. In the thirty-eighth year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel in Samaria six months. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him, and struck him down at Ibliam, and put him to death, and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Zechariah, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. This was the promise of the Lord that he gave to Jehu, Your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it came to pass. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, began to reign in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned one month in Samaria. Then Menahem, the son of Gadai, came up from Terzah and came to Samaria, and he struck down Shalom, the son of Jabesh, in Samaria and put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Shalom and the conspiracy that he made, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. At that time, Menahem sacked Tifsah and all who were in it and its territory from Tirzah on because they did not open it to him. Therefore, he sacked it and he ripped open all the women in it who were pregnant. In the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menahem, the son of Gadai, began to reign over Israel and he reigned 10 years in Samaria. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Pul, the king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Pul a thousand talents of silver that he might help him to confirm his hold on the royal power. Menahem exacted the money from Israel, that is, from all the wealthy men, fifty shekels of silver from every man to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. Now the rest of the deeds of Menahem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Menahem slept with his fathers, and Pekahiah his son reigned in his place. In the fiftieth year of Azariah king of Judah, Pekahiah the son of Menahem began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned two years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. 
And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, his captain, conspired against him with fifty men of the people of Gilead, and struck him down in Samaria, in the citadel of the king's house, with Argob and Aria. He put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Pekahiah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. In the fifty-second year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah the son of Remaliah began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned twenty years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ijon, Abel-Beth-Makkah, Genoa, Kedesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. Then Hoshea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and struck him down, and put him to death, and reigned in his place in the twentieth year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Now the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? In those days the Lord began to send Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah the son of Remaliah against Judah. Jotham slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father and Ahaz his son reigned in his place. So far, the word of God. Uh, As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 53, stanzas 1 through 5. The text that we want to give our special attention to is the verses 8 through 31 of 2 Kings 15. That's the accounts of the kings of Israel that's in the northern kingdom. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this is a dark chapter. Uh, It's a terrible chapter. And and I would want to admit uh, from the outset that I, just as much as any of you, would would rather skip chapters like these. Uh, Just as much as you, I I would question, is is reading chapters like this really good for us? Uh, we, We all wonder, couldn't we be reading something else instead? Uh, And yet this chapter is here in Scripture. And this is the last chapter of the history of Israel, the northern kingdom, before their final ruin and exile in 2 Kings 17. Uh, And in terms of of, of just evil and chaos and horror, all the stops are pulled out in this chapter. Uh, If you thought that Things couldn't possibly get any worse in Israel. Uh, they, they do now. Up until the last chapter with the reign of, of Jeroboam II, uh, we see God restraining His hand because of a promise He made to Jehu that His sons would reign to the fourth generation. Uh, we saw that uh, last time. Uh, and so God was almost just unbearably patient 
with Jeroboam, 41 years of reigning and, and idolatry and evil, and God restrains his hand because he made a promise. But now you get to the fourth generation with his son, and it takes all of six months for God to say, enough of this, uh, this king is gone. Uh, you, you almost get the impression the way the story is told and the way that history played out that, that God's patience had been so tried by Jeroboam for 41 years of idolatry without repentance that the moment God was able to, to bring an end to that line, God acted and God did so. And that's what you see in this chapter. You see the whole nation of Israel tumbling, that, that descent down the hill that picks up speed, tumbling towards an inevitable judgment that is now a mere 30 short years away. Uh, you see the restraining hand of God lifted uh, from, from Israel. And you see this outpouring of violence, chaos, evil, and just utter madness during these last years. Uh, hopefully you, you noticed as you were reading this, hopefully you noticed the contrast also with the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, in, 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 in Israel, you have five kings, Zechariah, Shalom, Menahem, Pekahiah, and Pekah, <coughs> that all come to the throne of Israel during the reign of Azariah, or he's also called Uzziah in Judah. So Uzziah reigns 52 years in Judah, a long, stable reign. And during his reign, one king after another, after another, comes to the throne in Israel. Uh, the, the key to understand this is, is given in Proverbs 28, verse 2, where it says, When a land transgresses, it has many rulers, but with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. That's the kind of thing you're seeing here in this chapter. The land is in sin, and its rulers are beginning to multiply. They're short, unstable reigns. The end is the clear sign that the end has come in, in Israel. Uh, Jeroboam the second, his long reign was, uh, I described last time, as the calm before the storm. Uh, you knew it was coming, but it was, it was stable for a moment. Uh, but now that storm is here, and, and Israel is headed towards judgment. Uh, so we're left with the question, what do we do with a chapter like this? Uh, our focus ought to be on Israel um, and not on Judah, because that is the focus of the chapter as well. You have 52 years of Azariah and nothing said about him. Chronicles actually has a whole chapter, and it's a very interesting chapter, devoted to Uzziah. Uh, but Kings leaves it out. It just says he reigned for 52 years, did a bunch of stuff, and, and then it moves on to, uh, to the kings of Israel. The focus is here on Israel. And we get, again, five kings in short succession, lasting on average just a few years each, uh, some of them only a few months long. Uh, Pekah is the one exception here. It says he reigned 20 years. But actually, if you do the math with, with Pekah, uh, the numbers don't add up. 
Um, I won't bore you with all, all the details, uh, but apparently we're supposed to assume some sort of co-regency. So though he reigned 20 years, he was not in charge of all of Israel. He was in charge of his own little corner of Israel for, for 20 years. Uh, so if you had to say during that time, was there anyone who you could call king? Uh, you, would, you would say Pekah was the one, but it, it was not uh, a sole reign. Uh, it was not concentrated power. Uh, in fact, there was at this time no more central capital in Israel. Uh, yes, there was Samaria, but the kings, you notice, reign in different cities. Uh, they're coming from different places, uh, and, and evidently at different times there were multiple men who, who claimed for themselves the throne of, of Israel, uh, that, that believed themselves to be the rightful king. It's sort of like the papacy uh, in the 1300s, uh, where, where there were four different popes at that time, all of them claiming to be the rightful pope uh, of the church. Uh, and and it, it was absolutely chaotic. We have a similar situation here in Israel. It's absolute chaos. And most of the guys who get to the throne, how do they get there? It's not by rightful succession. It's by killing the guy who was there before them. Uh, so these are the last days of the northern kingdom. And it's absolute chaos and panic and evil. Uh, now, the major reason for the chaos and for all the assassinations and the coups uh, is not just the spiritual depravity of Israel, though it certainly is that, uh, but it's also the reality that the Assyrian Empire, the great empire of Assyria, has now reached the borders of Israel. Uh, that's in keeping with the constant warnings that God had given to his people through the prophets. If you don't obey, if you don't repent, if you don't turn, Assyria is coming. Well, now Assyria is at the door. And the, and the result is the people of Israel are in just absolute panic. Uh, the Assyrians were famous for their brutality, for their cruelty uh, to the nations they conquered. And so what you see in Israel behind all of the coups and all of the assassinations is just an absolute panic. Uh, what do we do about Assyria? Uh, it's helpful here to understand the dilemma that these kings were facing uh, with respect to Assyria. There's basically two ways you can respond to Assyria, and, and you can actually see both of these two different approaches reflected in our text. Uh, one way to respond to Assyria was to pay them off. Uh, you give them what they're asking. You give all the tribute that they're asking uh, for. Uh, that's what you see someone like Menahem doing. It says he paid a thousand talents to the, uh, of silver to Pool. That's another name for, for Tiglath-Pileser, the emperor. Uh, it says he exacted the money from the richest of the people and he paid it to the king of Assyria. Now, the benefit of that approach is that hopefully Assyria leaves you alone. Um, and they do for a time. The downside to it is it takes away any hope you have of ever defending yourself if they do attack you because you've just spent all of your money, all of your resources on paying them off. Uh, so you're left absolutely defenseless. And on top of that, it's, it's not very politically popular to, to do this, to pay off uh, the, the Assyrians. Uh, and, and then if the Assyrians do decide later, we're going to come back for more, you have nothing left to give them, and you have no means by which to even pay an army to fight them off. So that's one way, uh, and, 
And politically, it's a bad move. It makes the king look like a coward. It makes him despised by the people when he takes their money and gives it to, to these, these enemies. The other option is resistance. You can resist these Assyrians. You can fight them off and just hope against hope that somehow you're going to win, that somehow something happens to their empire, that it crumbles before they, before they, they beat you. Uh, and the advantage of that approach is at least you preserve your, your integrity as a nation uh, and, and you keep your resources for fighting uh, your, your battles. Uh, the disadvantage is there's, there's no hope. Uh, there's no chance of success. There, there's no way to beat Assyria. And the Assyrians were famous for their brutality and their cruelty to nations that took that approach, uh, who, who refused to, to submit to them. They would skin enemies alive. They would cut off hands and feet. Uh, they, they would often gather children into the city and burn the whole city uh, with the children in it. Uh, they enslaved sons and daughters. Uh, they roped up populations with uh, fish hooks through the lips and, and dragged them all into exile. Uh, they, they provoked fear of the worst kind in anyone who opposed them. So for, from a king's perspective, it, it's a terrible dilemma. Do you pay them off and lose any hope of resistance? Or, or do, you, do, you just, uh, do you fight them and hope against hope for, for victory? There's not a winning solution. And this should help us to understand the panic then that existed in Israel during this time that led to this constant uh, coups and the constant assassinations. Uh, the reality was neither approach had any hope. You have some kings that try one way, some kings that try another way. The worst way is, is the halfway uh, compromise because uh, that, that's just going to provoke their anger and spend half your resources uh, on, on pacifying them. Uh, and so no one wanted to take that approach, and so it's a life or death. Which way do we go? Neither have hope, and everyone ends up just killing each other in Israel, trying to find a way to deal with Assyria. Uh, so it's absolute panic to, to fight something that cannot be fought, cannot be beaten. Uh, and we should not under, underestimate in relation to this, the significance of God's word through the prophets during this time. Assyria is not there by chance. Assyria is there because God said they'd be there if Israel didn't repent. Uh, it was warning after warning. Uh, we should know these are the days of, of most of the prophets that we have in our Bibles. Uh, Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, and Micah all lived during the times of, of these five kings in Israel. Uh, so even though as you read this chapter... It just tells the history. It just tells the stories of these kings. And you might get the impression that God was just silent the whole time. He, he was not at all. Uh, we know that God was saying things in those times to God's people by reading the prophets who spoke during those times. It's always a helpful thing when you read kings to, to read the accompanying prophets who, who date themselves to these, these kings. Uh, so, so that's what we see in Israel. There's a hopeless attempt to stop an unstoppable empire that's not just militarily powerful, but that's backed by the warning of God's word who said, they're going to destroy you. Uh, there isn't any hope. Uh, so every city in Israel, whether they were a pro-surrender city or a pro-resistance city, uh, 
they were in absolute panic. And the one thing they had in common, as you read the prophets, the one thing they had in common uh, on these two opposite ends of the spectrum was a mutual hatred for the prophets of God. Uh, Whichever way they went, they hated the prophets of God, and they stubbornly refused to repent and believe the word of God. Uh, So what we see here then is a nation that is now given over to judgment. And here's a nation in the face of judgment, staring hell uh, in the face, and now deciding what to do. And that's what makes the evil and the cruelty uh, all the more mind-boggling. Because here we have a nation on the brink of hell, on the brink of judgment, uh, in, in absolute panic. And instead of in that moment falling on their knees before God, begging God for His mercy, what do they do instead? They descend into a deeper level of evil than we've ever seen before. Uh, the, the story of what Menahem did to the people of Tifsa is, is just horrifying. It was a practice, we've heard of it before, uh, from Hazael of Syria, uh, that, that Menahem has learned from Hazael as a way of terrorizing any city that resists him. Uh, and, and so he, he, he sends his army to the city, defeats them, drags out their women who are pregnant, cuts them open in front of their husbands and children. You can't begin to imagine the whole horror of such a day and and the most appalling thing about it is this is an Israelite doing this to fellow Israelites this is among God's people doing this to one another and it's not just one man it's his entire army enabling him it's enough of the nation supporting him to let him get away with this Uh, consider this Menahem is the only king who didn't get assassinated in this chapter. And he's the worst of them all. So it leaves you wondering, what do you do with a chapter like this? How do you even begin to interpret the evil that you see in a nation like this? Well, the evil and the cruelty of Menahem that's on display in that that one verse uh, is just so utterly incomprehensible. And, And I'm actually certain that that's precisely what this chapter wants us to consider. The the madness, the insanity of a nation of sin in the face of the impending judgment of God. Sin in, in the face of hell does not repent on its own volition. It doesn't get better, it gets worse. Uh, we, we can talk about all the political motivations that Menahem may have had to, to do something like that. Uh, But the reality of it is, this is the doing of a man who was possessed by his own evil and depravity. Uh, This is the evil of a man who's placed himself on the throne of God, saying, I will now be a law unto myself, and I will take it upon myself to violate the bodies, to violate the image of God in others, uh, and, 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 and I could care less what God above thinks about it. Uh, Sin, in the face of judgment, in the face of hell, does not repent. It does not, by its own volition, get better. It rather doubles down, unrestrained by God, and becomes horrifyingly cruel and evil. 
That's the very essence of sin, in fact, that we take it upon ourselves to sit on the throne of God. We cast aside the law of God. We make ourselves our God, and the things we do become horrible, shocking, and cruel. Well, I trust that uh, we are all familiar enough with such evils uh, ourselves as well if we've studied at all the last century uh, in, on this globe. Uh, the, the bloodiest century that, the human, that human history has ever witnessed was the, the 20th century. Uh, and the mind-boggling reality of it uh, is that so often the greatest violations of human dignity uh, have taken place at the hands of dictators who knew that they were on their way out, who knew what was coming to them, uh, who were on the brink of defeat. Uh, Adolf Hitler increased the genocide of the Jews when he saw that his Nazi empire was crumbling. Uh, the, The Japanese armies increased their cruelties against the Chinese and the Japanese and the Koreans and and their prisoners of war as they saw their empire crumbling. Uh, Sin in the face of doom does not repent. It gets worse. Uh, Menahem, think about this man. He lasted for a meager 10 years. It's not actually that long. And it was 10 years of cruelty and evil. 10 years of him sitting on the throne of God, pretending to be God and violating boundaries, violating bodies and living above every law. And then what? Then what? Then he stands before the throne of God. And and yes, he's the only king who escapes assassination. So he can maybe say, well, look, what I did worked for 10 years. And then what? Uh, 10 years and he's gone. And his son, his dynasty, is assassinated in six short months. Or excuse me, in in his son, it was two two years. Uh, So ask yourself the question, why? Why did Menahem do it? Uh, The reality is, it wasn't for anything that was going to last. It wasn't to produce a dynasty that was going to last for hundreds of years. Uh, It wasn't for a purpose that that Menahem stooped to that level of evil because he had nothing to gain that was ever going to last. Uh, it It wasn't for the dynasty, but rather it was for the joyride. It was for the joyride of pure evil, the pleasure of sin that sits in the throne of God, for that momentary pleasure of just inflicting fear, agony, and terror on everyone else around him. It was for that experience of a sinner being God to himself for a few short years, an evil, cruel, vindictive God named Menahem. That's the only possible explanation for why he did what he did. And I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, that's what all sin is. It is madness. It's evil for evil's sake. Because every sinner knows there's nothing to be gained here. It's nothing that will last uh, can, can be gained by sin. Certainly nothing that will last into eternity. And every sinner knows it. Uh, moreover, every sinner knows, as, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1, that we will, all of us, ultimately stand before the judgment throne of God. Some of us may suppress that truth, but Paul says every one of us knows it. Every human being on earth knows it. So why do we sin? Well, we sin for the joyride, for the pleasure 
of being a God unto ourselves for a few short years and then falling into hell. Uh, what we see in this chapter is a glimpse, uh, not, not unfamiliar to anyone who studied history, uh, of what sin looks like when it's fully grown and stands unopposed. Uh, we will be God as far as we can get away with it, and we will be as terrible a God as we can be. It's the attempt to live the lie that Satan told Adam and Eve. You'll be like God. It's an attempt to live that out to the fullest. And one of the, the, the helpful things about the Psalms uh, of the Old Testament is, is they refuse to be naive to the human condition. Uh, they refuse to limit their focus, as so many of our hymns will do, to, to, to nicer, cuter, more gentle things. Uh, to our postmodern ears, that, that makes many of the Psalms unsingable. Uh, but to those, uh, you can imagine for those living under the malice of people like Menahem, possessed by their own evil, uh, the Psalms speak truth into a very dark world. And for that reason, they're so helpful and so precious. Uh, Psalm 14, uh, also it's the same as Psalm 53, uh, verse 1, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, and there is none who does good. That's a dark statement. And that's a statement that would have resonated in the minds and hearts of those who lived under people like Menahem. Psalm 36, verse 1, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. That speaks to those who live under people like Menahem. Or Psalm 52, uh, verse 1, Why do you boast of evil? O mighty man. This is the psalm that David wrote against Saul after Saul uh, massacred the people of the city of Nob. Uh, Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The psalms are helpful because the psalms are honest about our condition. And as much as we might then hate being in a chapter like this, Chapters like these are helpful for the very same reason. They speak from the perspective of God, showing us this is what we would be apart from God's grace. Uh, We get a concrete glimpse of what it means when it says He did evil in the sight of God. Uh, In addition to that, it shows us that this is a judgment coming from God Himself. Uh, The reality of impending judgment uh, is not just a historical reality that you can attribute to different economic and military forces. Uh, It is is not just the randomness of history, but it is the sovereign, unstoppable judgment of God uh, against a nation greatly deserving of that judgment. Uh, You'll see this more clearly when we get to chapter 17 as well. Uh, We should recognize the exile is now right at hand for Israel. Uh, In in 30 uh, years, it will be here. And the, the exile is one of the clearest foretastes of the reality of hell itself. Uh, There's nothing on earth more horrifying than the exile uh, of Babylon. Uh, It was a hellish experience. Uh, You can only begin to imagine the agony of being taken from your homeland, never to see it again, and watching your sons and your daughters sold into slavery or worse. And, And so what we see in this chapter is the nature of sin 
in the face of hell, in the face of God's judgment and the madness of sin that does not repent, that is not sorrowful, uh, but rather increases its evil. It's unrepentant, it's blind, it's raging, it's proud, and it lasts for a brief moment and then is flung into hell. Uh, We should be left with an appropriate sense of horror and even disgust uh, when we read chapters like this, but also humility and desperation for the grace of God and the mercy of God. Because, brothers and sisters, this isn't just Menahem's problem. This is our problem. This is the problem of sin apart from the grace of God. You see the same thing in so many places on earth today. The cruelty of Menahem is not at all unknown in our day. Uh, I think immediately of the the favelas of South America uh, ruled by the drug trade and some of the exact same cruelties that Menahem did are still done in in those places. Uh, Unrecognizable bodies of men, women, and children come out of those favelas on a daily basis. Uh, and, And like Menahem, The madness of it is is so mind-boggling. The torturers themselves are are usually young, uh, teenagers, or in their 20s, and they very rarely live past their 40s, and they know it. They know that it's a short life. They know that it's a life of chaos and madness, and they choose it nonetheless. It's a brief reign of terror, a momentary sitting on the throne of God, uh, taking upon oneself the right uh, to violate others, and then it's over, and they know it, and then they must die, and they must stand before God. It's absolute madness. It's insanity, the sort of insanity that never stops to look back, uh, that never, uh, apart from the intervening grace of God, uh, wouldn't even know where to look or how to turn back. And it's all over this earth. Uh, The prisons of Russia. Uh, A video came out a few months back of of a recording of of several dozen or so soldiers in Russia uh, torturing a helpless prisoner and and laughing. Uh, It's in the concentration camps of North Korea or or the pits of hell ruled by ISIS uh, and, and other terrorist groups. People who torture, who behead, who burn alive, who rape, who sell into slavery. And they do that with an utter carelessness, an absolute disregard for the judgment of God. Uh, more recently, the villages of Myanmar uh, were, were just unspeakable atrocities, or the villages of Nigeria, uh, where, where these atrocities are committed by soldiers driven with bloodlust, driven with hatred, and knowing, knowing that they're not going to live long, knowing that it's not going to end well. Uh, You think of the city squares in Gaza, uh, where Hamas has been known to break bones, cut off limbs, kill children of those who speak out against them. Uh, Just utter madness, absolute cruelty, a a senseless joyride on the throne of God before they plunge themselves off into hell. Uh, Speaking even more broadly, it's there in the husbands who batter their wives or who inflict a reign of terror upon their children. It's there in the mothers who murder their children in the womb and have the audacity in our culture to brag about it afterwards. It's there in the bullies in school who make it their pleasure to just inflict terror and and pain on on others who are defenseless. It's there in the kids then, many of them 
who were bullied, who then take up weapons to go and shoot up schools just to inflict a a reign of terror for a brief moment before dying and throwing their lives away. It's pure, senseless malice. And it's so common, so endemic to the human condition. It's the insanity of sin in the face of the judgment of God. And I hope that it would impress upon you, as it does upon me, uh, our desperation for the mercy of God. Uh, Because this is what sinners do, what you and I do in the face of God's judgment. We double down. Without God, without hope in the world, uh, we stand under the judgment of God. We don't repent. We spit in God's face. We increase our sin. We sink deeper into depravity. And as we watch then the the nation of Israel, God's people doing this, hurtling towards judgment, uh, it ought to make us see our desperate need for the grace of God in Christ. It's depravity like this that makes the gospel of Jesus Christ all the more precious and all the more necessary. uh, That God would have mercy on sinners like us, sinners like Menahem, that God would forgive. Uh, It's a hard pill to swallow. It makes the gospel message shocking when you know how sinful sin is. Uh, When we know that we who are sinners more like Menahem than unlike him, uh, that we would do the same things uh, under the same circumstances apart from God's grace, that we can be forgiven, that we can have our eyes opened to the gospel and to the justice of God and yet not be condemned by it. That is amazing, shocking, troubling, but also precious news. Uh, We should see how how, how senseless and evil sin is when it's fully grown. We should see how much we're like Menahem, not unlike him. And we should see how then precious is the gospel of Jesus Christ for sinners like you and me. The glory of the gospel is that sinners, uh, sinners by nature in every way like Menahem, who are destined for judgment in hell and deserve it, every bit of it, do not have to go there. That Jesus Christ, sent by God, came into this world and died a cruel and a terrible death, inflicted by soldiers just like Menahem, who did it for the pure pleasure of seeing absolute agony in the people that they crucified. Uh, That there Christ went for us to bear the fury, the anger, the wrath of God against our sin uh, and the sin of the human race for the evil that we've done, for the good that we ought to have done and didn't do, and for the very hearts that are there within us capable of evils a lot like this. That Christ would die for us uh, and go there in our place that we might not have to face the wrath of God. It's shocking news and it's glorious news. It should soften us. It should humble us. It should shatter our pride. It should break our self-righteousness. And brothers and sisters, you then who know the lostness of your condition, apart from the grace of God, consider the mercies of God towards you. If the gospel is ever old or tired news to us, uh, then a horrifying chapter like this is exactly 
where we need to be, uh, where we can recognize the hopelessness and the lostness of our condition apart from Christ. Uh, as, as Jesus says, the one who knows he's been forgiven much will love much. Uh, no one will love Christ more than the one who knows the fullness of the misery from which he was saved. And, and if we do know it, uh, then I trust it will also produce within us a humility a tender-heartedness that surpasses uh, all other emotions, uh, an earnestness also to carry this good news to, uh, to, to all the nations, to those outside the church who are more like us than they are unlike us, who are sinners just like us, who are desperate for the grace of God, who need it and who without it will fling themselves into the abyss of hell. It should produce within us, knowing that we are like them, it should produce a softness of heart, a desire that they too would come to know the grace of God. Uh, So, brothers and sisters, though I'm sure none of us enjoy being in a text like this, uh, I hope that being here would help us to see more clearly the, the, the madness of sin, the lostness of our condition, but in that, the depth the depth of God's mercy, that he would love people that we would declare absolutely unlovable, who could love Menahem, who could ever want to be merciful to him. And God would say, likewise, who could ever love you, who could ever want to be merciful towards you? And yet God was. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. So may God have mercy on us as we seek to live the life of the gospel. May he lead us as we come to know the riches of his grace and lead us more and more away from sin, more and more towards his good and perfect justice and righteousness as well as his abundant mercy. Uh, How badly we and the whole human race need the grace of God. Amen.